So, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, good morning, everybody. And if you could please keep your Bibles open in Matthew chapter 3, and I'll pray as we begin. Psalm 119 says these words. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding, so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Father, we pray this morning you would teach us, you would give us understanding, because we want to be those who obey you with all our heart to the very end. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, in Charles Dickens' novel, Little Dorrit, Dickens creates the comic character John Shivery. He's the son of the porter at the Marshalsea prison, and he's in love with his childhood sweetheart and the heroine of the novel, Amy Dorrit. But what he cannot grasp is that she does not return his love. And so he persists throughout the novel in believing that one day she will be his wife. And so, finding an opportune moment, he plucks up the courage, seizes the opportunity, sees her alone, and here is the conversation. John Shivery. We've always been good friends, you and I, haven't we, Amy? Amy Dorrit. Yes, we have, and I hope we will continue so. Nothing changed. Ah, but things do change, Amy. It is the way of things and the way things should be. I think I should go back now, John. Amy, please, let me say what I have to say. I should go mad if I don't. I think you know I've always loved you ever since we were playfellows. And I've always been fond of you, John. I'd do anything for you. I would fling myself off that parapet if it would give you a moment's joy. Please don't do that, John. <laughs> then put me out of my misery and say you'll be my wife. I'm sorry. I can't do that, John. 
I'm fond of you, but I could never feel that way about you. And so, soon after this devastation, John Chivery comes up with an epitaph for his own headstone. Here lie the mortal remains of John Chivery, never anything worth mentioning, who died of a broken heart, requested with his last breath that the words Amy be inscribed over his ashes. False expectations can be profoundly damaging. It is an awful feeling to look forward to something for so long and then in the end be terribly disappointed. Perhaps for you it was the World Cup, all over now. Or it's the summer holidays, long awaited but then potentially wet, cold and stressful. Or it's results day, if we have high hopes but then things don't match up. Or it's marriage, if we think it will solve all of our problems, the end to loneliness, sexual temptation, but it doesn't work out like that. Or it's financial security, we think if we can have financial security we can control our lives but of course we can't. Or it's retirement. The life of leisure seems so attractive, but then it doesn't turn out so easy. False expectations can be profoundly damaging. As Dan said, we are beginning a four-part series, looking at Matthew chapter 3 and 4. And Matthew's Gospel comes after 400 years of silence from God. There is a period of waiting. But then it begins with the drama of the virgin birth, and the escape to Egypt, but then another period of waiting, 25 years, the end of chapter 2 or more. We don't know much about Jesus' childhood, because the chief truth Matthew wants us to understand is the purpose of Jesus' coming. And to help us get this, to help us understand, to help us get our expectations right, God sends John the Baptist. You see, of all of our expectations in life, this is the big one. This is the one that really matters. We've got to have the right expectation when it comes to God. This passage is so important because there is nothing more important for us today than to know what God is like and to have the right expectations of him. We're going to see that Jesus came to bring God's rule on earth. That's the kingdom of heaven. But one of the big surprises is that Jesus' coming actually comes in two. That is, he has come, but he is still to come. And so we find ourselves today in a similar position to those original hearers of John the Baptist. We are still those who await the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the king. And so the question is, what is it going to be like? What is God going to do when he comes to reign? What shall we expect? Is it good news for us? Is it bad news? How do we get ready for such a coming? Well, John the Baptist will help. We're told in verse 1, if you have a look with me, but in those days, that is when Jesus was in Nazareth, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he comes with a message. Look at verse 2. He says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven, that's God's rule on earth, has come. It's not a physical kingdom like the kingdom of Great Britain. It is a dynamic kingdom. It comes in the lives of individuals. It, it is effective where people follow God's king. And it is near because the king is near. And so the message is repent. That's what we should do, repent, which means literally to, to change or to turn around. Sounds kind of easy, but actually it involves a radical reorientation of life, where I say to God, God, my life belongs to you. Do as you please. So that's the message today. Jesus the king is coming, so get on his side. But what is he going to do? 
And what does repentance really look like? Well, John will help us to understand. What will the king come to do? Two aspects of Jesus' mission, two truths. Firstly, the king will come to save, and secondly, the king will come to judge. So number one, the king will come to save. Matthew says that John the Baptist has not come unexpectedly. Now, it was predicted that he would come. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said it, and it's there in verse 3. This is what Isaiah said. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Isaiah looked forward one day to someone who would operate in the wilderness, and that's where John is. He said he would call out this person, and that's what John is doing. He said he would prepare the way for the Lord God himself. He would call people to get ready for him. That's what it means to make straight paths, to get the red carpet out, to put on a banquet, tell the media, gather the crowds. That's what John's doing. He's calling us to get ready. And what is so significant is this. Just think, if John is the messenger that was predicted, the one who is calling out in the wilderness, then what does that tell us about the one to come? Well, the quote comes from Isaiah 40, as Dan read earlier. And Isaiah prophesies in the 8th century BC, and he predicts exile for Judah. The Babylonians are coming. And yet his message is one of comfort. That is, there is hope beyond exile. God is coming to save. And so the king that is to come, that John the Baptist is helping us to get ready for, is none other than God himself, the eternal, immortal, invisible, only God. And Matthew says this is Jesus. He's the king to come, and he's the king who will come to save. But what does it mean for him to save? For the Jews in Isaiah's day, that meant return from exile. But Matthew says it points beyond that, because today there is a sense in which all of us are in exile. That is, we are born in hostility towards the God who made us, away from his favour, like sheep wandering away from a shepherd. We, by nature, wander away from God. In our society, we're very proud and pleased to have dismissed God. We're far wiser than those who came before us. We're convinced we're right. And yet, as we do it, we wander into the thicket towards the edge of the cliff, individually, as a society. We are in a mess. We're like sheep, foolish and helpless, craving freedom, but becoming ever more captive to sin and further away from God. And yet Jesus comes to set us free, to restore us to God. The King will come to save. That's John's message. And to help us understand it, he gives us a visual aid, and that is baptism. Just have a look at verse 11. Here John speaks explicitly of the work of Jesus, and he says this in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John dunked people in the River Jordan. It was to help people understand what Jesus would then come to do. And what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that Jesus will bring cleansing. He'll bring washing. He'll bring a safety from the waters that drown, the waters of judgment. In baptism, we go down to the depths of death and then are raised to a new life. 
but it's just a visual aid. It doesn't actually do anything. Jesus will bring the real thing. He will baptise with the Holy Spirit. That is, Jesus will wash us not simply with water so that we are physically clean. He'll wash us with the Holy Spirit so that we are spiritually clean. Friends, what we see is that we can be pure in the sight of God. Although our sin promises so much, it leaves us dirty, defiles us, and causes us to be guilty. We've been spoiled and damaged, but Jesus can make us pure. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That is what Jesus does. He makes us pure. He cleanses us by his blood shed on the cross. We can be pure in the sight of God. He'll baptise us with the Holy Spirit and also with fire. Fire, it seems in one sense, is a picture of judgment to come, but I wonder if there's also a sense in which it symbolises the purifying work of God. Fire not only destroys, but it also refines and purifies. And so I wonder if that is partly also what Jesus will do. He will send his Spirit who will cleanse us and renew us and change us. The King will come to save. So friends, do you know the comfort of salvation? Do you know that if you belong to Jesus, when you stand before God, and your life is exposed in public, every thought, motivation, word and deed, Jesus will say of you, cleansed, pure, spotless, blameless, without fault, free from accusation, mine, chosen, loved. That is what Jesus will do. That is what God wants us to know. That is what he wants us to expect of Jesus. The king will come to save. So you, perhaps you feel today that God is just not interested in your life. Perhaps you feel that God is somehow against you, or he's abandoned you, or he's given up in your cause. But why? Why do you say that? Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded? by my God. Have you not heard? Do you not know? The King is coming and he will come to save. He has poured out his blood for us. He's already poured out his love for us by his Holy Spirit. So though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So do you know the comfort of salvation. That's the first thing Jesus will do. The king will come to save. But then there's another aspect to his mission, and it's this. The king will come to judge. I don't know if you noticed, as we read the passage, what John the Baptist is wearing and eating. It is a bit strange. Look at verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I think if I met John, I would probably ignore him, avoid him. He is a bit weird, isn't he? I mean, he's not what we've come to expect of Christian preachers. I don't think he'd get on the God channel. There's no slick suit, slick hair, slick rhetoric, nothing like that. And we've got to ask ourselves, what is going on? Why does John look so odd? Well, at one level, John is typical, actually, of a poor man in the wilderness. Um, Locusts, what we think of as grasshoppers. And this food is still eaten in those parts today. 
But I think there's more going on. Because when we see John dressed like this, wearing his clothes, we should be reminded of someone else. There's an Old Testament figure who's just like John. Just hear this as a description of him. He was a man with a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. That's from 2 Kings 1. And it's a description of Elijah. So when we see John, I think we're to draw a connection with Elijah. We're to think, oh, he looks just like Elijah. Now, why would that be? Well, at one level, <clears throat> we're to see that what John is doing is in line with what Elijah was doing. He's kosher. He's the real thing. But again, I think there's something more specific still. Because the final prophet of the Old Testament in our Bibles is Malachi. He spoke 400 years before Christ. And he spoke of the day of the Lord to come. And just listen to this. These are the last verses we have in our Old Testament Bibles from Malachi. He says this, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike that land with total destruction. Last words of the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is coming. And how are we going to know when the day of the Lord comes, this terrifying day of judgment, where Elijah will come? And then it will come. And what we see here is that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Jesus makes this explicit in Matthew eleven twelve. And so if, if John is the Elijah to come, what does that tell us about the king to come? Well, it tells us he will come to judge. He will bring about the day of the Lord. We know that because Elijah has come, John the Baptist. And then again, John gives us a visual aid. Not the Baptist, but this time the farmer. Look at verse 12. He says this about Jesus. When he comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you picture the farmer at harvest time. He's got his wheat, his grain, covered with chaff, and he wants to separate those. So he gets his fork, picks up the grain, and throws it in the air, and the grain falls down, heavy grain, into his barn, and he gathers it. The chaff is blown away by the wind, and he gathers that, and he puts that in the fire. This is the picture John gives us to tell us what Jesus will do. It is a graphic image to describe his mission. Friends, he will come to judge. He will separate and divide people. All those who belong to Jesus will be brought to God, and all those who don't will be excluded from his presence. It is a sobering picture of final judgment of sinners being thrust from the presence of God and cast into what Jesus will go on to call hell. Jesus, the most loving man ever to have existed. Hell, which is a place of consciousness, a place of horror, a place of sin, a place where people experience not the blessing of God, but the curse of God. Fire is a picture of destruction, but it's unquenchable, it goes on. It is an end to a life of experiencing the blessing of God. And the warning here is that all those who turn their back on God 
will one day be rejected by the one he has appointed to judge. The warning is that all those who resist the rule of the king will one day be overthrown by him. But all those who live as if there is no God will truly live without God and his blessing. The king will come to judge. To some, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share in your master's happiness. But to others, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoer. The king will come to judge. These things are not easy to hear. And so we're bound to ask the question, should we really speak of hell in our modern age? Perhaps it seems unfair or unloving or unkind. How could God possibly do this? Shall we all ask that question? But Jesus insists that these things are real. And not only real, they're also right. Now why is that? How could that be? Well, it's because I think God is passionately committed to justice. Justice demands that wrongdoing must be punished. It's because God hates what is evil. It's because he will never become accustomed to sin. He will never begin to tolerate it. He will never soften in his attitude. You see, we condemn sin in others, but we often also tolerate it in our own lives. We condemn sex trafficking, but we watch pornography. We condemn greed, but we give little away. We condemn slippery politicians, but we lie when it suits us. And the Bible says when we point the finger at other people, we demonstrate there is a standard, there is a judgment, and at the same time, we condemn ourselves. Because we cannot live up to our own standards, let alone God's. But God is not like us. He has a holy and pure hatred of all that is evil. And one day God will right every single wrong. I read this week that in 2002, the US National Center for Missing and Exploited Children found 45,055 examples of obscene images of children online. That was in 2002. Last year, in 2013, that figure had risen to 23,881,197. Friends, there's something profoundly wrong with our world. And when God sees what is going on in Syria, and in Iraq, and in Oxford, and in our hearts, he recommits himself to punish evildoers. Because God's glorious plan is to remake this broken world, to renew this creation, to make all things new, to make a place where there will be no more crying or death or mourning or pain. But that is only possible if he deals with sin. And he deals with sinners. Because without the work of Christ, I would ruin heaven. Wonderfully, God will do something about this. The king will come to judge. These things are not easy to understand. But what we see is that it is not in spite of God being loving that he will do this. But it is because he is loving. And so it's no wonder, really, is it, that the message, the application of this, is repent. Get on the right side. Leave your sins. Stop resisting God. Seek salvation, because although the king will come to judge, today is the day of salvation. He offers mercy to anyone who asks. But what does repentance really look like? We've seen these truths of Jesus' mission. He calls us to repent. But what does that really mean? Well, in this passage, we have two responses. We have the crowd, 
and we have the religious leaders. And I think the crowd are a positive example for us, and the religious leaders a negative example. And they teach us about the nature of true repentance. So the crowd teach us that repentance involves confessing your sin. I remember a few years ago, one sunny Sunday afternoon, driving from Bath, where my parents live, to Oxford um, with Susie. And we'd had a large lunch, and I was tired. I'd often been tired driving the car, so I didn't think anything of it. But I was struggling. And as we got into the A34 for the final stretch, the last half hour, I became increasingly tired, and I was more and more concerned. And then, suddenly, I fell asleep. I was gone. For two or three seconds, it's completely gone. And then I woke up, it was a surreal experience, facing the other way, because our car was spinning. Now, wonderfully, there was no car right next to us, so we just carried on spinning. And then I managed to regain control after I'd woken up, and I kept on going, and I managed to stop at the nearest lay-by. And you know what I said to Susie? After I'd fallen asleep at the wheel, the first thing I said, Susie, I told you we should have stopped for coffee. That is to say, it is a humbling experience to acknowledge when we've done something wrong. It's not easy. And yet repentance involves doing just that. It is saying to God, God, I am wrong, and you are right. God, I am not innocent. The only innocent person ever to have lived was Jesus. If you're not a Christian here today, perhaps you're investigating Christian faith, let me tell you that unless you are willing to acknowledge that you have done something seriously wrong, then I don't think you'll get very far. Because our sin is not just that we've made a mess of things here, that we've mistreated people, it is that we have offended the almighty creator and lord of the world. And that is a serious crime. And God is calling you today to own up, to turn from your sin, to cry out for help. And the crowd here, I think, are a model because they get it. They go, don't they, in the numbers, and they confess their sins. And that is what we should do. If we are Christians, I take it this will have a huge impact on the way we present Christian faith to other people. Because we're not simply saying to people, come and join our community. Come and be part of this. Come and consider the claims of Jesus. Come and have a think about God. Come on, your life will be much better. But we are calling people to repent. That is the application of the gospel. And for the Christian, it's also not just a one-off event. This is a daily acknowledgement that we come before God simply by his grace. It's wonderful that Dan prayed that prayer earlier because that's what it's about. It is daily acknowledging to God that we depend entirely on him. So we may look around at church and say, well, aren't a wonderful bunch of people, a museum of saints? We know that's not true, don't we? Because individually we know we're broken people. We come as a hospital for sinners. We come to Jesus because he's the great doctor. I think this is quite a challenge because personally speaking, I'm happy for you to know I'm a sinner in the abstract, but I find it much, much harder for you to know I sin. Because that's humbling. And I'm proud. Much harder. I don't want you to know the details. But it shouldn't be like that, should it? We shouldn't cover up our sins. We should confess them to God and each other in our marriages, in our relationships at church. It should be normal to say, look, I am sorry, I was wrong. And I forgive you. That is 
basic repentance. So let me encourage you to be doing that, to have relationships where you do that. To have some context of accountability where you confess your sins to other people, where they know what you struggle with, rather than parading an image. Repentance involves confessing your sin. That's the crowd, but then finally we have the religious leaders. And they teach us that repentance involves fleeing from misplaced confidence. In verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to join John. They're the religious leaders. And I take it they don't come for baptism, but rather to check John out. And John's response to them is fascinating because he doesn't think to himself, oh great, the religious elite are here, wonderful evangelistic opportunity. Let's get them in, you're very welcome. No, he goes right in the attack, doesn't he? And it's brilliant. He says, you brood of vipers, who wants you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God could raise up children of Abraham. You hypocrites, he says, you fools. And so we're asking, aren't we, well, why is he say that? Why is he go on the offensive like that? It seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? And I think it's because John knows the danger of false religion. He knows the danger of misplaced confidence. See, this attitude is so common, isn't it? It's when we say to ourselves, I am basically a good person, God would be entirely unreasonable to think otherwise. I do a lot for his cause, I get out of bed on a Sunday. I do it regularly. I serve tea and coffee at church, and I do it with a smile. I'm a member, I even vote, positively. I'm in a home group, I'm a deacon or an elder. God, you owe me one, I do a lot for you, we have an understanding. Or perhaps it's a secular version where I say, I don't believe in God, but I'm objectively a good person. I don't harm anyone. I'm a good neighbor. I'm involved in the community. I give blood. I grow vegetables. I'm, in, I'm, I'm good. If there is a God, he would be entirely unreasonable to think anything else. And so this person is confident in their own righteous deeds. And the religious leaders are just like this. As Jews, they were physical descendants of Abraham. And they had confidence in that external cultural badge. And they thought that was enough. But what they do not see is that God is looking for fruit. He's not looking for people who are physical descendants of Abraham. He's looking for people who are like Abraham. And what was Abraham like? He trusted God's promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His confidence came not from his righteous deeds, his performance, his cultural badge, but simply by believing in the promises of God. And that is why John warns them because God is not interested in external acts of religious observation or moral goodness. He's interested in fruit. That is why John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we're probably thinking, what does fruit mean? Seems a bit odd. Well, fruit, I think, is obedience to God that comes from an inward and lasting change brought about simply by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a work that God does in people when we come to God and we say, look, God, I'm helpless. I'm like a lost sheep. I am spiritually bankrupt. I hunger. I thirst. I want to be different. I cannot do it. God, forgive me. Help me. Change me. That is the person in whom God produces fruit. Inward, lasting change. So I wonder if this morning you feel discouraged by your battle with sin. The thought of confessing it seems an abomination. You're weak, you're helpless. But that is a good place to be. It is much, much, much more dangerous to think that God owes you something, that you have an agreement, because of your performance. 
or because you're married to a Christian, or because your parents are Christians, or because you come to church. And John warns us against this. That is why he's so harsh. Because repentance involves fleeing from misplaced confidence. So if you know today your trust is anywhere other than in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross, you must confess it. That is the warning, because the basis for our plea before God can simply be Jesus and his righteousness, not ours, because we don't have a lot to show. The king is coming. There's only one safe place to be, and that is to be poor in spirit. Because although he's come to judge, he's also come to save. So friends, let's cry out to him for help. That is what God wants us to understand today. That is the expectation that we need to have. My friend. Father, we thank you for the, your mercy to us. We thank you that you tell us exactly what we're like. And yet you still love us. We thank you for baptism, that wonderful picture of cleansing. We pray that you would help us today to see ourselves for who we really are, to own up and to rejoice in the peace we have and the forgiveness we can have through Jesus Christ. Amen.